Well, good morning. Happy summer. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. It is hard to believe that we are already halfway through June, uh, but I, for one, feel as if my family is just beginning to settle in to the slower rhythms of summer. I hope that's true for you too. And if it's not, I hope it's coming soon. Uh, and, and maybe if it's not yet for you, you can take your cue from liturgical time because summer is also a slower season in the church. Uh, these green linens here depict what we call ordinary time in liturgical time, which is the stretch of weeks from Pentecost all the way until Advent, which is after Thanksgiving. And it's called ordinary because we count the weeks with ordinal numbers. So this is the third or fourth week after Pentecost, third. But it's also conveniently called ordinary time because we are also in the season where the church carries on with its ordinary life. And what is the nature of that life? What's the nature of the Christian life? At Pentecost, the spirit was poured out and the church was born. So now our ordinary life as Christians is a life of spirit-infused mission. In the atrium, our kids at church here call the season we're in growing time because of its liturgical color. Green is for growing time. I was in line for communion with my five-year-old a few months ago and he got up to the table and saw the green pyramids and he said, oh, it must be growing time. And that's exactly right. In the age of the spirit, the church is called to grow, both in depth and in breadth through our mission to make disciples of all nations. Now, some of you might hear that and you're already beginning to feel overwhelmed. You're thinking, wait a minute, I thought these were the slow months and now you're telling me I need to be on mission. To which I would respond, well, yes and no. On the one hand, there's always the call to wake up and to let God light a fire under you if you have forgotten that you belong to a bigger story than your upcoming beach trip. On the other hand, it might actually help to reframe even your most ordinary moments as those in which the spirit is present and the harvest is plentiful. Every slow moment with your kids this summer, God is at work to bring his kingdom. Every conversation with your neighbors, every moment you spend on the beach or not, God is there recruiting you inviting you into deeper communion with him, into fuller participation with his kingdom, which we heard in Matthew this morning is at hand. The kingdom is here. It's available to us right where we are, everywhere we are, because the kingdom is wherever Christ is Lord. In other words, Christian mission doesn't only happen in the overtly religious or spiritual sounding parts of our lives. It doesn't exist exclusively overseas or in the places you sign up to volunteer or in the Christian activities that you sign up for, although all of those things, of course, matter. But the mission to which you have been called is also in your home. It's in the way you pack for that upcoming beach trip, right? Because if you're a cranky, crabby taskmaster of a vacation planner like I am, uh, you know what I'm talking about. These things can be sanctified. The mission of the kingdom pertains to the way you relate to your family and the way you conduct yourself at work and the way you enter into and receive the gift of rest that God has for you. Christian mission isn't an extracurricular activity. It's the stuff of our ordinary lives, 
which we are called to increasingly surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And in some ways, that's actually much harder. That's a much bigger ask than just signing up to volunteer somewhere or go on a mission trip, isn't it? Because it's much more all-encompassing and it's much less achievable in our power. It has to do with the quality of our interior lives, which we actually have less control over than we might like to admit. And that's precisely why the Spirit has been given. Because the mission to which we're called is bigger than us. The mission of God can only be accomplished by the power of God. And we're going to look more closely at our gospel reading this morning to see what this looks like, but I I want to preface it with some good news. The mission of God, which is the mission of the church, the work we give ourselves to every ordinary day of our lives, is a mission possible. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. It is ripe on the vine. The kingdom is a field that he has already sown and we get to reap. So in whatever ways you are personally staring down your mission in this season, however overwhelming or impossible it seems to you, I invite you to reflect on these words of Jesus. He has promised that your labor will not be in vain. He has seen a harvest that maybe you haven't yet, that maybe in your limited imagination you can't see or you can't believe will ever come. And yet his words remain. The harvest is plentiful. These are words to hold on to when the work is slow or seemingly insignificant or just plain hard. Here's how Paul put it in his letter to the Corinthians. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And in Galatians, he said, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The mission to which God calls us is a mission possible. With that said, I want to reflect a bit more on the nature of this mission and what it looks like to enter into it. I'm gonna highlight four things from today's gospel that will help with this. And I'm indebted to New Testament theologian Dale Bruner for some of these insights. So if you want to do a deeper dive into anything that I'm saying this morning, then I highly recommend you check out his commentary on the book of Matthew. That's Dale Bruner. So here are the four things about the mission to which we're called. It's rooted in Jesus' compassion. It's fueled by prayer. It's lived in community. And it's ordered towards shalom. We're all in summer brain, so I thought I'd just give them to you up front. You're welcome. First, the church's mission is rooted in Jesus' compassion. Look at verse 35, right where our gospel reading starts this morning. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It's very telling that Jesus saw the Jewish multitudes as harassed and helpless. He was the perfect Jew, the only one who had lived faithfully, truly faithfully to God's law. And his ministry was to call his fellow Jews back to fidelity to their faith. In other words, Jesus could have looked at the crowds and seen them as pathetic and hypocritical. Instead of feeling compassion, Jesus could have felt disgust. 
He could have felt resentment or anger or even despair. And we know at times that Jesus did express anger towards those who misused God's name. But anger is not what motivates him here to send out the apostles. It's compassion. God's heart for the world and for us is not primarily to get us back in line because he's displeased with us. His heart moves toward us because he feels for us. I think this is a very important starting place for finding our posture in the world because so often Christian mission looks and feels to others more like contempt than compassion. Do you know what I mean? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. And to the extent that this is true, the church is accountable for this. We must repent of the ways we have misrepresented God's heart for the world. But we can't stop there. We also need to reflect on the ways in which we have failed to receive God's compassion for ourselves. Often it's much easier to believe in God's compassion for others than it is to believe in his compassion for us. As I meditated on this text this week, I had to ask myself, do I believe that God's mission to me is rooted in compassion? I think many of us, especially if we were raised in the church, we tend to feel that on some level, God is kind of disgusted with us. That he sees our sin and our apathy and our worldliness and that he's kind of ashamed. Maybe you relate to that. Maybe you need to hear that God's mission to you, his commitment to you and to your holiness, is not because he's disgusted by your sin. It's because of his compassion for you. And I think that getting this right will heal the church of any contempt that we do have for the world. Because as long as we live with an internalized sense of shame before God, as long as we believe, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that God's primary emotion towards sinners is disgust, we won't know how to feel anything else towards those on the other side of us. Our mission must be rooted in God's compassion, and this begins with learning how to receive it for ourselves. Second, Christian mission is fueled by prayer. Verse 37, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A few things here. The first of which is this. Compassion without calling usually runs on guilt. And if guilt is your fuel, if you're primarily motivated by shoulds and oughts, you're going to burn out. This is why Jesus doesn't say, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, so get out there and do something. He says, pray earnestly for the Lord to send out laborers. Now the word he uses in verse 37 for sending out laborers, is the same word he uses in chapter 10, verse 1, when he talks about casting out evil spirits. In other words, sometimes a calling from God feels like a kick in the pants. It feels like being cast out. It's not always going to be comfortable or convenient or feel good. But the point is, the Lord is the one who calls. And when he calls, he also equips just as he equipped his disciples with everything they needed for their missionary journey. He gave them the authority and the gifts that they needed, and he has promised to do the same for us. So we pray 
for the Lord to send out workers. Now maybe you hear this and you think that by leading with prayer, I'm giving you a cop-out. And depending on how you're wired up, you might either be very disappointed or very happy about this. Some of you might be thinking, no, I wanna do something. I want to respond to the needs that I see. I don't wanna just pray about it. And others of you might actually be thinking, this is great, I would much rather pray about it than do something. You know who you are. But either way, whoever you are, prayer is the needed corrective because it reminds us that the power belongs to God and not to us. Prayer teaches us that whatever we are to be or do in response to the needs around us, God is the one who will do it in and through us. Dale Bruner put it like this, we do not make ourselves or others into workers. We pray for this making. So if you're apathetic, prayer might just change you. It might be you whom the Lord ends up calling. And if you're overconfident, prayer will humble you because it will direct you beyond yourself, beyond your resources and ideas and skills and your ability to affect change in your situation. Prayer teaches you to ask for what you need from the one who has it. For me, this has been most true in my parenting. When I've had an issue with a child, I've thought, oh, well, I'll just Google it real quick, do some reading. If, if it's really serious, I'll even read some books about it because I'm very devoted. Uh, but the point is I can figure out what's going on and what I need to do differently to help my child. And my oldest is seven, so I have about seven years of poor results <laughs> with this approach. And yet it still takes me a while into my own mining of my resources to realize that maybe what I need to do is pray about the issue that my child is facing because maybe what actually needs to change is me. I need God to shape me into the mother he's calling me to be for my child in this season. All mission, even the most ordinary mission, is fueled by prayer. And on the note of ordinary mission, it's actually quite encouraging to me that Jesus tells his disciples to pray for workers in the harvest. The image here is not of skilled farmers per se, but of common day laborers, people who would help out in the short term to make some money during the busy harvest season. So to apply this to ourselves, we need not think of God's call as only going out to the people who are going to do the really hard, the really specialized, the long-term Christian work. That's certainly in view here, but it's much broader than that. This is about God calling all kinds of people to do all kinds of work because remember, God's kingdom is coming everywhere. Just last week we had a confirmation service which is sometimes called the ordination of the laity because the bishop lays hands on adult members of the church, ordinary people, to appoint them for their ministry as priests to the world. And last week's group included landscapers and teenagers and stay-at-home moms and grandparents and local missionaries, to name just a few of you who were up here. And what did the bishop do for them? He prayed for them. He asked God to strengthen them for witness and ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. God is the one who calls and who equips us to work in his harvest. We discover and we move into that calling through prayer. 
So I encourage you, if you haven't done this in a while, to ask the Lord earnestly, where are you sending me? What work are you giving me to do, Lord? And then once you have a sense of the answer, keep praying. Prayer is the fuel of mission. Third, let's talk about community. Notice how Matthew names the disciples in this passage. He does two interesting things here. First, he provides some details about just how diverse this group of men was. And second, he names them in pairs. This is significant. It's a hint that community is integral to Christ's mission because in a way, the community is the mission. Jesus is talking here about the lost sheep of Israel, scattered and helpless, he calls them. And then he calls very incompatible Israelites, 12 very diverse men, into the first ever Christian small group. (laughs) This is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue his people. It calls to mind Ezekiel chapter 34, which says, Behold, I myself, the Lord, will search for my sheep. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places they have been scattered. So Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, who'd been scattered from fidelity into the pocket of Rome. And he calls Simon, the zealot, who'd been scattered into a political party who hated Rome and was planning a revolution. And then he calls them together and puts them on the same team. He's gathering up his people from all the corners of practice and ideology in which they've sought safety. And he's making one flock for himself. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is still doing this. He is still calling people to himself who do not naturally look alike or think alike or vote alike. And he is seating us at the same table and commanding us to love each other and to work together to love the world. Thank you. I mentioned that Matthew names the disciples in groups of two. Now, it's more explicit in Luke's account, but in Matthew, the 12 are listed in pairs to remind us that Jesus sent them out on mission in twos, in teams. He didn't send out any lone rangers, no celebrity standalone superstars, because Jesus came to build a community, and even our mission is meant to be an expression of that. Now, we don't always do a very good job at this, but we shouldn't be afraid to admit it because the truth is, this is really hard. Community is hard, and collaboration is hard, even with people who you might think are compatible with you, like your spouse, maybe. We aren't always compatible with each other in the church. We bring different generational perspectives and different socioeconomic backgrounds different ethnicities, different genders, different political persuasions. But we all belong to Jesus, and he has given us each other. So on mission, who has God given you as a partner? If you don't have a team, maybe now is a good time to look for one. And if you have a partner or a team that's driving you crazy, maybe that is where God wants to meet you. Maybe part of his mission for you is meant to be lived out through the community he has chosen for you in this season. Mission is lived in community. Last thought, Christian mission is ordered towards shalom. 
picking it up in chapter 10, verse 7. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, and no extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Much more here than we have time for now. But what I want you to see is that Jesus' instructions here reveal the nature of the kingdom that is coming. It is a kingdom of peace. You can't buy it or get rich off of it, but you can receive it freely. It's a kingdom that changes not just our spiritual status or even our moral palate, but our bodies and our lives and our neighborhoods. The only offense against it that will disqualify you is rejecting it outright. This is why Sodom and Gomorrah, towns that were notorious for their evil, they will fare better in the judgment than otherwise upstanding religious folks who feel they can do without the lordship of Jesus. But if you want to be worthy, if you want in on the kingdom of heaven, all you have to do is receive it. To receive the peace that is on offer to you and to this world. And then as a recipient of the kingdom of peace, you then become an emissary of it. Just like Jesus' original disciples, you received without paying, give without pay. As Christians, we participate in God's mission when we extend the peace we have been given. When we work for what the Hebrew scriptures call shalom, wholeness, the kind of healing and renewal that comes when God puts everything he made back in order. It's his alone to do, but in his great mercy, he has chosen us to partner with him in that work. And we do this in big and small ways, as we've already seen, formal and informal ways, miraculous and seemingly very ordinary ways. But the mission of God, the mission of the church, is always ordered towards shalom, the putting back together of creation. So I'll leave you with a final set of questions as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. In what ways do you need shalom today? In what ways do you need to be put back together to be restored and to receive God's peace? And how is God calling you to be an agent of shalom to someone or some place in your world. By the power of the Holy Spirit and in the strength of community, this is your mission possible. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have come to give us peace, peace with God and with each other and to make us agents of reconciliation in the world, beginning with the people right next to us. We pray that you would give us faith to say yes to you, to hear your voice, to respond, and that you would do infinitely more than all we could ask or even imagine according to your power at work within us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.